Hello and welcome back to 15.6 FM Radio, brought to you by Deadline Serial, the best way to fuel for finals. I'm your host, Margaret Hardig, and today we're coming to you live from Bryn Mawr's campus. On today's episode, we'll be talking about what the study of gender systems and gender ideology in early colonial Peru reveals about the process of decolonizing history. This includes how different forms of agency, both female and textual, were asserted in quote-unquote contact zones. I want to first start with a definition of this term, contact zones. Mary Louise Pratt, an NYU professor and a scholar of Spanish and Portuguese languages and literature, writes that she uses the term contact zones to, quote, refer to social spaces where cultures meet, clash, and grapple with each other, often in contexts of highly asymmetrical relations of power, such as colonialism, slavery, or their aftermaths as they lived out in many parts of the world today, end quote. Her definition comes from page 34 of her 1991 journal article titled Arts of the Contact Zone. Contact zones are spaces that were once lived upon and within and then suddenly shared. It is, of course, imperative to stay away from the word, disco- the word discover. The use of the word contact is more accurate here. Once Spanish colonists arrived in Peru in 1532, it was now a contact zone, and the Andean peoples who inhabited the land before were now called indigenous. What do I mean by that? Weren't they always indigenous? Well, this is the question and point of relational language posed by Professor Mary Louise Pratt. It's no accident that alternative, these alternative proposals are coming from people who get called indigenous. Because that term indigenous actually names not a characteristic of a group of people, but a relationship between people who inhabit another location when somebody else arrives uninvited. Nobody is indigenous. Nobody is indigenous till somebody else shows up, right? Right? It's a relational identity. And that somebody else shows up has to be, is an imperial somebody, not an invited guest, but somebody who arrives to interrupt their lives. What you just heard was a snippet from a lecture at the 2014 Chicago Humanities Festival called The Rough Guide to Geopolitics with Mary Louise Pratt. Professor Pratt's train of thought on indigenous people and the modernist myth of travel is similar to scholars Catherine Donato and Donna Gabacha. Decolonizing legislation, government cover-ups, and feminization of migration, these are all issues that can be applied to this episode's more centralized research and discussion of the contact-era Americas. Donato and Gabacha's 2015 book, Gender and International Migration, is a helpful addition to our conversation today about reworking old notions of colonialism and imperialism. In this work, Donato and Gabacha aim to debunk the narrative of modernity and illustrate just how long women have been active participants in their own stories. They believe it is imperative to do so, to move past the macro understanding and into the untold micro, unheard ideas, dynamics, and stories. The first chapter in Donato and Gabacha's book examines the relationship of its namesake, data and discipline. Discipline allows historians, researchers, and readers alike to communicate, but there are a plethora of limitations. Donato and Gabacha begin their analysis of migration back in the 15th century in order to investigate how the transatlantic slave trade was a driving force resulting in large-scale forced migration. 
In the 20th century, historians look at the rise of quote-unquote feminization and migration and connect it to the increased demand for female labor. Donato and Gabacha lay out evidence that, quote, women have always been a part of migration flows for more than four centuries, end quote. It's only the label, feminization, that is new. Donato and Gabacha also assert that although women were brutalized in various parts of migration history, they still had agency. It is dangerous to only cast women as victims when they were still actors in their own stories. Sources, of course, can be flawed, and therefore we must reevaluate them in order to properly examine horrific events where individual voices were not recorded or severely diminished. Even primary source documents are to be approached carefully because if the source is a court document, there may be bias there because how can we as historians know what pressure was present at these proceedings? Irene Silverblatt, author of Moon, Sun, and Witches, Gender Ideologies and Class in Inca and Colonial Peru, joins this debate over why women's voices were muffled in the historical archive. Silverblatt points to Western gender configurations forced onto colonized peoples as a, if not the, culprit. In the acknowledgments of her book, published in 1987, Silverblatt writes that, quote, Gender systems legitimize what it means to be male or female, and we are now aware that gender ideologies overflow male and female identities to infuse the fabric of social life. They permeate much of human experience, ex extending to our perception of the natural world, the social order and structures of prestige and power, end quote. Previous to colonization, Men and women experienced a greater equilibrium, but in order to not overly essentialize, it is important to distinguish that the coloniality, coloniality of gender does not presume that there were fully egalitarian relationships or relations between men and women in pre-colonial times, but there were more complementary relationships. It is now a widely accepted truth and fact that race, of course, is a social construct and not biological, but it seems a challenge for some still that gender is a highly complex social and historical construct as well. The intent to focus on distinguishing a binary is a result of colonialism. A result or the result of empire was not the creation of uniformity but of many many categories. Historical circumstances can change one's own identity. When experiences are grouped, nuances are lost and unique individual experiences are left unheard or untold. A goal to sift through the layers of identity is something that is important to Irene Silverblatt. She acknowledges this in her book that, quote, history making is also history denying, end quote. Silverblatt, who is a professor of cultural anthropology at Duke University and also an alumna of Swarthmore College, writes with an ironic tone as she describes the Spanish's limited and harmful perspective of Incan culture and practices. An unfortunate but common colonial tale is that the Spanish marveled at first at the impressive social hierarchy system of the Inca, with its detailed class divisions based in many ways on controlling the land of others. But then the colonists were quick to snub the Incan culture because the Incas were not Christian, and therefore they had that had to mean that they were quote-unquote faithless. Spanish colonists disregarded the Inca's worship system, which stood in pre-colonial times to be this, quote, the Incas worship the sun as father and their dead kings as ancestor heroes. Women worship the moon as mother while venerating Inca queens, her closest daughters, as founders of female dynasties, end quote. 
Silverblatt's consideration of pre-colonial Inca gender ideologies and gender systems and gender parallelism is very important because previously in discussions of gender roles, historians were only considering how the Spanish were understanding the Incan's world. But the Spanish could only understand, and this is a Silverblatt quote again, quote, the Spanish could only understand the world that they conquered through the categories and perceptions that their own culture provided, end quote. Therefore, it is vital in order to properly understand gender roles and female agency in colonial Peru to look at both Incan culture and um, Spanish colonial culture. This brings me now to another modern feminist scholar of gender, Professor Florence Babb. At the Social Justice and Cultural Self-Determination in Latin America and the Caribbean Conference, held at Duke University in 2014, Professor Florence Babb shared her research on gender, race, and, and indigeneity in Andean Peru in a keynote presentation. She begins her presentation by acknowledging that in the 1970s, there was a push to revisit and look for more evidence on women's lives in the historical archive. This harkens back to our earlier discussion of Donato and Gabacha's discussion on the quote-unquote feminization of history in the 1980s. The UN, Florence Babb acknowledges, actually declared 1975 International Women's Year, just showing how large this feminist interest was to galvanize researchers to take women's lives seriously, women's lives as subjects themselves, not as addendums or additions to men's. Here is an audio clip from her presentation at this conference, where she shares how her own work was actually met with some backlash. My first publications on, on, on the topic in the mid-1970s were met by a dismissive response from several scholars who had been associated with the project, but I was more concerned about the mixed reviews of Peruvian feminists, some of, some of whom were, were uh, favorable, but others judged my view of pre-project social relations in Vicos to be idealizing the past and supporting gender complementarity, as I argued um, that the evidence showed that families were more unified as they resisted the abuses of the hacienda system and that gender violence against Vicocinas was perpetuated largely by mestizo men who came from outside the community. The concern wasn't that I underestimated exploitation under the hacienda system, and in fact, I was sharply critical of it, but that I must have been overlooking evidence of domestic power imbalances and gender inequality internal to the community. While it's certainly possible that I missed some evidence in the archives, up to now no further gender research has come up with such evidence in, in those archives and I think it would be a great project um, for graduate research if anybody would like to take it on. That last comment was directed at her audience at this conference, which was filled with undergraduate students. But what I found interesting in that last comment about, oh, that would be an interesting topic for graduate research is that Peruvian feminists have researched this since her work in 1970. And while Florence Babb does spend much of her presentation patting herself on the back, I, I will say that I did appreciate that in this moment she acknowledges that there were mixed reviews from Peruvian feminists to her work because Babb herself is a white woman and the history of white people and anthropological research is not pretty to say the least. 
Peruvians themselves have played a very important part in decolonial theory and method, not just Western scholars. A very decorated Peruvian scholar comes to mind, Rocio Quispe Agnoli. She has been acknowledged by the Embassy of Peru in the USA for her academic and literary contributions and was even given the title Peruvian Woman of the Year in 2013. She is now a professor of Hispanic studies, specializing in colonial Latin American literatures and cultures at MSU, Michigan State University. Her 2011 article, Taking Possession of the New World, Powerful Female Agency of Early Colonial Accounts of Peru, is the key source in today's episode. By tracing dates from labor grants and letters, Quispe Agnoli found that there were 102 incomoderas in colonial Peru over the time period of 1532 to 1620. 16th century incomoderas, excuse me for my pronunciation, were, quote, women who had received a labor grant from the Spanish king, including thousands of laborers as a reward for their or their husband's services to Spain's wars of conquest, end quote. These incomoderas had great access to wealth in a time period of great transition, and with this power, women, both Spanish and Incan, were able to operate in spheres other than domesticity. Rocio Quispanoli then brings in author Margarita Zamora's definition of quote-unquote textual agency. According to Zamora, textual agency is when someone makes their voice heard through a text, whether that be a legal court document like a court case or a land deed with the intent of prompting a reply or a reaction from the recipient of the document. Quispanoli not only provides important background information on the general structures of Andean gender roles of this era, but specific stories of individual incomoderas. Quispanoli acknowledges that women's agency is traceable through textual agency, through their performance in colonial spaces, these colonial spaces we have defined earlier as contact zones. Professor Florence Babb briefly mentioned this in the clip that we played earlier, but the encomedia system, which is where the term encomedieras or encomedieros, which the cover art for this episode uh, tried to autocorrect encomedieras to encomedieros, which I thought was a little ironic in our discussion of, of female voices being silenced, but the encomedia system organized the economy, society, and politics of early colonial Peru, but this was, of course, a, a Spanish system. And before the arrival of the Spaniards, Andean people of diverse ethnic groups were organized into several different communities that were each led by a local chief. But this encomedia system uh, was a labor system created by the Spanish crown in 1493. And the culmination of this discussion on female agency and textual agency is within this uh, Incomedia system in colonial Peru because because these uh, incomederos and incomederas were were given land grants that is how we were able to trace who who were incomederas and and how did they speak for themselves in the archive this question of how were women's voices heard in the archive comes up when people ask themselves, well, could these women write? And the answer is no. We, uh, these women that we're discussing today were uh, illiterate. But what Keith Bagnoli acknowledges in her section of her article called Women's Voices Under Male Legal Rhetorics is that there was a huge role of the notary. Historians have long acknowledged that men who were illiterate 
used notaries to share their points of view, but women did the same thing. Spanioli talks about this when she says that, quote, the notary became a textual mediator between the oral count of the conquistador and the written text produced by the rhetorical structure of the Count of the Indies. In early colonial Peru, women were able to produce accounts of Indies in similar ways to their male counterparts. Since they also had stories to tell and rewards to request, they too used the notary's services to write their accounts of Indies. In terms of rhetorical frames, men and women use the account of Indies and related genres as political tools in the same ways and with the same objectives. Ending the quote there, these documents that um, both incommitteras and incommitteros were using notaries for were proofs of nobility, proofs of merit, and requests to the king to restore, restore land that may have been taken away or a request for, for more land. One example of a Spanish incommittera was Munoz de Ribera. De Ribera used legal text to fight and win back her incommittera. She was the wife of Francisco Pizarro, the conquistador. She was the wife of his half-brother. And before she came to Lima, she was born in, in Sevilla in 1500, and she actually lived to a very long ripe age of 94. And although her status was elevated by this marriage, she acknowledges in her letter to the crown, when she's asking for more land, distinctly what her female role was in conquests in colonial Peru were. A translation of a part of this letter reads like so, quote, I am the first married woman who came to these lands and started populating them and served your majesty in this conquest and against the rebellions in these lands and their pacifications in which she endangered her life many times and spilled much of her blood in this adventure. End quote. In this translation of the letter, she specifically calls out her own active participation in the conquest of Peru, and for those reasons, she is demanding more power. This was actually a common tale for Spanish incomodidades because their foot in the door to getting more power was to prove how their own services were powerful in the conquest of Peru and why they deserved merit enough from the crown to get more privilege. A key difference between Spanish and Incan incomodidades was that Inca elite women would prove in these letters that they were direct descendants of Inca rulers, and therefore they should be legitimate owners of lands and, and labor. One example of uh, Incan incomodidades was a concubine named uh, Wailas, and she was one of Pizarro's first elite uh, Inca concubines, and, and rather than focus on the horrible um, sexual assault and trauma that Wailas definitely experienced, what is interesting um, about Wailas is how she used her situation um, and her position to gain her own power. It is important to not just focus on the trauma she experienced, but also acknowledge the power and the agency that she was eventually able to wield herself, that she gained herself. Because of her connection to um, Pizarro, though, she is a little bit different than the other Incomideras because she combines themes employed by both Spanish and uh, Inca women. In her letter to the king of Spain, she emphasizes both her noble origins and her knowledge of uh, the region in Peru and how 
she was able to tell people war strategies of the Inca army and therefore um, she served a pivotal role in the siege of Lima. And therefore, in this letter, she emphasizes that under this labor system that Spain has implemented in Peru, she would like to be granted and rewarded for her participation in conquest. A takeaway from today's podcast is, although you may have uh, digested history and learned history a certain way over the, um, the course of your life, it is important to look back and think, well, what systems was I being told this information through? Was it through um, a colonial system and the language of the victors, or did I actually get to hear the voices of the people who were um, oppressed and the voices that were intentionally suppressed in the archive? Whereas Rocio Quispianoli and Irene Zifferblatt discuss in their respective works, if we don't oversimplify indigenous experiences and we don't try to look at things only through a Eurocentric lens, all of a sudden, the historical archive opens up. And that is all we have for today's episode. Uh, thank you for joining us. This has been 15.6 FM Radio.